Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. I don't give in to overstatement nor hyperbole, but I am going to unleash it here for the subject of my next episode. It's about a brand new podcast that just launched and it's called We Interrupt This Broadcast. Before it was history, it was news. Now, I hope you're all well out there. It is said that breaking news is the first draft of history. We interrupt this broadcast. Before it was history, it was news. Marks the first time the stories of these historical events are told exclusively by the broadcasters and TV journalists whose work created those drafts in real time. The title comes from the New York Times best-selling book, We Interrupt This Broadcast, by Joe Garner, and he's my guest coming up. It's brilliant and riveting stuff, full of material rarely or ever heard before, and it celebrates the crucial role broadcast journalism has played throughout America's history, from the Hindenburg disaster to 9-11, and much more. These are episodes on all the seminal broadcast news events, including the assassination of John F. Kennedy and another terrible tragedy, Columbine. Hosted by the legendary broadcaster Bill Curtis and narrated by NBC's Brian Williams, each episode unfolds with the brisk pace and tone of a thriller while preserving an in-depth look into the reporting off and reaction to events that have since become benchmarks in history. Some of these events changed the history of journalism again and again, as Joe Garner explains to me. Those four days were transformative in the history of broadcast journalism, because up until that point, print journalism was still the primary source of news and information. In this country, if you listen to Walters, to any of the bulletins, they all include a a reference to uh, a a print uh, publication or wire service because broadcast was still sort of a second class citizen until the next day when uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was seen being assassinated live on NBC television. That was the first national news event witnessed live. And in that instance, television suddenly became the primary source of news and information because we went from a nation of I read about it or I heard about it to I saw it. That's the significance there. You go back to the very first episode, the Hindenburg. Columbine changed everything. It changed everything for media and it changed everything for a law enforcement because law enforcement, nowadays, law enforcement heads right in. In those days, they waited. 9-11 too. Ari Fleischer, who was uh, George Bush's uh, press secretary, uh, participated in this podcast series. And oh. he talked about the misinformation that was disseminated. And at the same time, he was so grateful for broadcast television because in 2001, there was no satellite TV on Air Force One. They had to rely completely on terrestrial television. So they, were, they would fly over a city whose wow. tower happened to be tall enough and powerful enough so that they could watch and then it would go to snow. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth 
answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. We interrupt this broadcast. Well, that's the name of a new podcast created by Joe Garner, and he's my guest coming up in a wee moment. It was a fascinating, free-flowing, and very in-depth interview about a superb new podcast he put together. It's hosted by legendary broadcaster Bill Curtis and narrated by NBC's Brian Williams. Brian Williams told me that hearing these stories again can make your heart race and make you cringe. It's all here, warts and all, he says. Listeners will be surprised to learn what we are brutally aware of in newsrooms. Early reports tend to be wrong, according to Williams. Hopefully, when people hear this curated coverage and the interviews with those who were there, they will hear the care we put into getting it right, he says. And Brian Williams reminded me, this is nothing short of our modern American history in audio form. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. My guest is Joe Garner, author of the New York Times bestseller, We Interrupt This Broadcast, and creator of the new broadcast, appropriately called We Interrupt This Broadcast. Before it was history, it was news. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Now, this is a very exciting time because you've just launched a podcast. How does it feel? Um, I, you know, I always get nervous. It's, it's like, it's like the first time I'd get a new book. I started as a, you know, I was in broadcast, then had an unexpected detour into publishing. And whenever I got a new book, it always took me a while to open it, you know, because I was always concerned about, oh my gosh, what did I forget? Uh, what if there are typos, that kind of thing. So same sort of thing with the launch of this podcast. It's something that is a labor of love, but at the same time, I it's it's very nerve wracking. I want to make sure that, uh, you know, that people enjoy it, that it entertains, that it enlightens, that it it uh, it met the objectives and that kind of stuff. So, you know, whenever you sort of hand stuff into the into the public, um, then you're kind of rolling the dice. Well, it's a beautiful podcast and I've started to Thank listen you. to it. And I will ask you about some of the episodes. We Interrupt This Broadcast was the name of your bestseller. And that's yes. how the podcast came to be named. Tell us all about that. Well, I'll, I'll give you the, the, the Reader's Digest version, then feel free to ask any question you'd like. I'd been at Westwood One Radio Networks for about uh, 11 years. I was in a meeting and we were talking about what kind of programming to create to to uh, commemorate the passing of the 20th century into the 21st century. And I got back to my office just struck by how everybody in that room had a story to tell about where they were when. Uh, and, and it dawned on me that these moments, um, the JFK assassination, Apollo 11 moon landing, uh, O.J. Simpson saga, these had all become more than defining moments in history. They'd become the benchmarks of our lives. Uh, so we, we shared that. And then 
it hit me that every single one of the events were introduced with the same four chilling words, we interrupt this broadcast. And literally in that instant, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting? And I've had a lifelong love and passion for radio and television and history and how the two intersect. So the book became sort of a, a, a selfishly motivated. It, it just seemed like a book I wanted to own because it occurred to me that I could tell these stories in text, illustrate them with the iconic photos that are inextricable with the memory of the event. But then because our history is literally recorded today through broadcast uh, journalism, I thought I could include the actual broadcast bulletins and news coverage um, the, the technology in 1998 was CD, so I could tuck them into the inside back cover so easily. And I just was on a mission and uh, didn't know the first thing about publishing. Uh, so I called on just about every publisher in New York City, blown out of every one of them. Finally found a little publisher in Naperville, Illinois called Sourcebooks, who said, I'm going to do this on one condition. And I said, what's that? And she said that you agree to go out and promote it because if you've just sold me, you'll sell the American people. And I thought, well, I come from radio. That's the easy part. So the the, the stroke of luck, though, just about uh, two or three months before we uh, went to press, I thought I need a name on this book that just um, embodies the history of broadcast journalism. And at that time, Walter Cronkite was still alive. So I didn't know him, didn't know anybody who did. Uh, so I wrote him a letter. Uh, poured every ounce of passion into it, same way I did with Bill Curtis, who narrates the uh, the, the CDs that came with it. And uh, as luck would have it, Walter said he'd be happy to write the foreword to the book. So we put it out. Six weeks later, it hit the New York Times bestsellers. This just changed the whole trajectory of my career. So it's always been uh, nearest and dearest. Uh, it's, it's the engine that started the train. So fast forward up to uh, about Oh, gosh, almost a year ago at this point, uh, I was talking with my business partner and he said, you know, which of your books um, do you think would translate best to podcast? And, you know, at that time and not to get political, but broadcast journalism was getting pummeled yeah, uh, as it has over the last four or five years. And I know broadcast journalists and journalists in general. And, you know, by and large, um, you know, there are a bunch that uh, that do uh, approach their job with integrity and um, and there's heart there. And so I thought I'm going to turn this into uh, a podcast to demonstrate the humanity at the core of broadcast journalism. It, it, journalism in general, it, it's a profession, yes, but it's a calling. And that's what you're going to hear time and time and time again in uh, We Interrupt This Broadcast, the podcast, um, because it, it literally is a who's who of broadcast journalists and to a person. Uh, Walter included, talks about how, you know, they're a lot like, uh, he doesn't use the term first responders, but firemen and, and nurses and doctors and so forth that, you know, they, when it, when it comes time to tell a story, they're compelled to do it. It's like I said, it's a calling and many times um, requiring them to check their own emotions, their own, uh, their own uh, sense of, of safety and so forth. And so that's, that's really what I wanted to do was to bring people inside that profession and what it's really all about. We interrupt this broadcast. That's not a phrase we hear anymore. I guess they've changed that around a little bit. Maybe it's maybe too hokey today if it was used. Well, it's, you know, I have still heard it used, but but because of, of uh, the proliferation of, of uh, cable, 24-hour cable, um, yes, it's it's sort of morphed into uh, breaking news or this just in. Yeah. But, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I, I recall when Peter Jennings, uh, when the book when the, when the book came out and, and it was at a book expo and Peter Jennings came over and picked up a copy of it. And he said, I've interrupted a few broadcasts in my day, but that was back when it meant something. Yeah. So 
you know that that's what's happened but but you know it's still it's still um uh, a phrase that that brings attention the era you cover in the podcast takes us up maybe a generation ago but it has a a large sweep of history they were different times in broadcasting you know the 60s and 70s in particular sure. where we had some of the seminal events in world and american history communications were different we didn't have instant communications and i was particularly struck by the episode on the jfk assassination everybody remembers where they were on that day if what's your thoughts about it i mean just the way it was covered and everything it journalists were reduced to tears and even walter cronkite and ordinary americans people all over the world were impacted mm-hmm. and deeply saddened one thing that that i noticed that the communication of the story to news headquarters there was a time lag. It, I mean, it just didn't happen instantaneously. Like today, if you were in Dallas today and you were covering that terrible tragedy, we hate to even think about it sometimes, or we're again reduced to tears, you could do a text to the, to the newsroom in New York or Los Angeles, wherever. Oh, sure. So there'd be microseconds delay, but that, that was it. And it'd be all over the world. Absolutely. Yeah. No, the technology just didn't exist at that time. Um, Merriman Smith was the, um, uh, the uh, AP, the UPI reporter um, who was able to uh, because he had a radio phone and he was. Yeah, I heard the, that phrase radio phone. Just explain yeah. what that is. Well, it's uh, it obviously predated, um, you know, predated cell and so forth and and, uh, and and used sort of shortwave. And he was able to um, uh, file a report about four minutes after shots were fired. Even then, he didn't know whether or not uh, President Kennedy uh, had been shot. Uh, what condition he was in and so forth. But one of the one of the things that I'm proudest of in that particular episode and, 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 and what we tried to do with every single episode was to have things uh, to have um, uh, content, uh, whether it was an interview or uh, some other piece of audio that, that, that you've either never heard before or has been rarely heard. And in that particular instance, I was able to locate uh, a gentleman by the name of Gary DeLone. Gary was a radio reporter for KLIF Radio in Dallas, Texas on November 22nd, 1963. His beat was the Dallas City Police Station. Um, and um, as as my luck would have it, Gary is is still uh, vibrant, and um, and and uh, do he was very willing to recount the details of that day. So uh, between Gary and Dan Rather, and uh, um, and then of course the archival uh, interviews with Walter Cronkite and so forth, we're really able to weave a very tight, almost sort of a thriller um, in how uh, that. Uh, day unfolded and was uh, and was reported. Also, uh, Robert McNeil, who was the reporter for NBC, uh, who managed to be in the hospital at Parkland uh, Memorial Hospital. So we really covered from all angles, and, it, and it's very visceral. And you're right. What what Don Hewitt, um, the the former NBC, uh, CBS producer, creator of 60 Minutes, observed, uh, and you'll hear it in the podcast, is that television was could become many things it could become a sports stadium it could become a theater it could become you know but in on that day it became a chapel yeah uh, metaphorically it became sort of the national hearth and you know viewers gathered at television and uh the the emotion that walter cronkite um 
you know, experienced was probably the same emotion. The reason it connected was because it was the same emotion that 100 million people who were tuning in at that time were feeling. So they they felt that that connection. And that's why, you know, I mean, most people weren't at home. It happened, you know, between 12 and, and two in the afternoon. So most people were at work. They were listening to it on the radio. But but Walter's um, genuine emotion connected so well that that's why his bulletins become inextricable with the memory of that event. And what's amazing is that I listened to it and I said, ah, what are they going to tell me that I don't already know? I've looked at and watched so many documentaries and media events about the JFK assassination. And I, I listened to, gosh, this is all rich detail, like simple, innocent things like the Stetson hat that they tried to get Kennedy to wear, apparently. Yeah. And he wasn't up for the game or something. And then how Jackie was presented herself. And then there was another gem where somebody called Walter Cronkite to complain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Walter tells that story himself. You know, he'd been on the air for a considerable period of time and he finally got a chance to um, to to breathe and to relax. So he stepped into the office that was just off the set. Um, where his replacement had come in and uh, he wanted to uh, have a friendly voice. He wanted to commiserate. So he wanted to reach out to his wife, Betsy. And he looked at the phone and the phone, all the lines were lit up, as you would imagine. And all of a sudden he saw one of those uh, little buttons uh, clear and he immediately pushed it to hopefully be able to get a clear line through only to answer it in the split second. Another call came through and it happened to be from a woman Mm. who uh, was, uh, as as Walter sort of describes her, to be a bit of an upper crust. And uh, she um, says, you know, I would like to speak to somebody at CBS. And he said, well, you've reached CBS. And she said, well, I just would like to say that I uh, think uh, that it's terrible that you have that Walter Cronkite on the air crying those crocodile tears when everybody knows he hated John Kennedy. And then yeah. you get to hear Walter as he explains just what he told that woman and what he thought about that woman um, and her call. So, yeah, that, that's really that's what we really wanted to do with this series was to take people on the inside and give them the experience from inside, um, uh, you know, uh, inside the story from the perspective purely of the broadcast journalists who covered it. Well, there's a lot of great episodes, and that's just one of them. Brian Thank Williams you. is the narrator, and yes. then Bill Curtis is involved in this as well. Yeah, and well, it covers a wide sweep. You know, can you take us through some of them? You know, maybe their titles. Yeah, what, what we wanted to do is we wanted to basically in every season, this is season one, was to span broadcast journalism history, um, because part of this is educational, um, quite honestly. Uh, so 10 of the episodes are of, um, of events that took place during the broadcast era, and we're all significant for a variety of reasons. Before we get off JFK uh, real fast, that those four days were transformative in the history of broadcast journalism, because up until that point, print journalism was still the primary source of news and information in this wow. country. If you listen to Walter's, uh, to any of the bulletins, they all include a um, a reference to uh, a print or a media a print uh, uh, publication or wire service, huh. because broadcast was still sort of a second class citizen, until the next day when uh, when uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was seen 
being assassinated live on NBC television. That was the first national news event witnessed live. And in that instance, television suddenly became the primary source of news and information because we went from a nation of I read about it or I heard about it to I saw it. That's the significance there. You go back to the very first episode, the Hindenburg uh, disaster, which we're all familiar with. Um, proud of that episode because we have elements of that that most people have never heard before, including an interview with Herb Morrison, who admits that he kind of made that event sound worse than it really was. I mean, mm. it was a bad it was a bad crash, but half the people survived. They were able to jump and so forth. But that was a recorded news event. And up until 1937, you know, the first 10 years or so of NBC's existence, they did not allow a recorded news event to be given the credibility of news. News had to be reported live. With that recording, that changed everything. Um, it was still another two years until they did another recorded event, and that was um, Neville Chamberlain's uh, declaration of war against Germany. But uh, it was really Herb Morrison's recording of the Hindenburg disaster that changed everything in terms of being able to present recordings of news events and, and being given the credibility. Then we go into D-Day, then we go into the JFK assassination and Apollo 11. And what I'm proud of in Apollo 11 is that NASA helped me find the gentleman who was responsible for getting the television signal from the lunar surface into television sets and living rooms around the world. The gentleman is still with us, thank God. His name is Dick Nafsker. And the funny thing about it is that Dick's only experience in television up until that time was working part-time for his father, who was a uh, uh, an engineer at a television station, I believe in Pittsburgh. He worked summers for him. He was working as a school teacher in uh, South Florida. And a friend of his at the Goddard Space Center called him up and said, hey, Dick, you know about television, right? And Dick goes, well, you know, I, I worked for my dad in summers. And he was like, that's okay. That, that's good enough. We want you to come to work for us. We're working on a project. And Dick said, well, you know, I'm doing pretty well down here. I'm teaching school. And he said, well, how much are you making? He said, well, I'm making 4000 a year. And his friend at Goddard said, we'll double it. We'll pay you 9000 You come up here and help us. And Dick said, it was too good to be true. So he said, I, I didn't really know what I was going to be doing. So I packed up my car. I drove to Goddard. And I remembered being in the first meeting. And all of a sudden, I said, you know what, guys? You know I'm not an engineer. And they said, well, that's okay. Here, read this book. And then we'll figure it out. <laughs> and if, essentially, that's what they did. And here was the thing that really surprised me. Television oh. was not uh, a priority for Apollo, uh, wow. any of the Apollos. Yeah. And, in, and on top of that, the astronauts wanted nothing to do with television. They found it intrusive. And in fact, here's sort of a, a funny irony. You know, the, the, the most watched uh, uh, anchor, um, uh, you know, um, duo uh, for that broadcast was CBS and it was Walter Cronkite and Wally Schirra. Well, Wally Schirra was the most vocal against television because in one of the test uh, programs, he had to get up inside the capsule and he got in there and he ripped his spacesuit on a camera mount. So he's huh. like, done. I want nothing to do with it. Well, NASA said, look, taxpayers paid for this. Taxpayers are going to see it, but it still wasn't priority until the landing. And then Dick Nafsker said, all of a sudden, television became the priority. And his boss came out, looked at him and said, this better work. 
So wow. it's uh, it's it's a really fascinating story. And, and and again, we tell it 360. We have Walter Cronkite's desk assistant. We've got the director of that telecast is is with us. He lives in Bo- um, uh, Naples, Florida. So uh, Joe Bano uh, is his name. Took us through the whole process of how they decided to to televise that uh, that event. And then we go up to uh, uh, more recent events like Columbine, Election Night 2000, uh, which, as you recall, was the closest thing we've had to Dewey defeats Truman. Um, and then we culminate this first season with um, uh, 9/11, America under yeah. attack, and it's 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 um, chilling. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Joe Garner, author of the New York Times bestseller, We Interrupt This Broadcast, and creator of the new broadcast, appropriately called We Interrupt This Broadcast. Before it was history, it was news. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. The next season, how will it go chronologically? We'll still we'll still return to some of the earlier events. Um, you know, we'll always try to span. Um, and then we've uh, we've also done sort of an homage to uh, an old CBS television program called "You Are There." Mm. Uh, back in the '40s and '50s, it was a radio program. Then in the '60s, it became a TV program. And essentially, what they did was they took events that predated the broadcast era from early American history. And had their anchors and so forth um, reporting them. With all respect, it looked a little hokey. But that's why we thought audio might work better. So we've actually got two events in this first season that are events that took place prior to broadcast era. But we are dramatizing them as if they were covered by broadcast journalists. And one of them is the uh, uh, ratification of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. And the other one is the Nat Turner uh, slave uprising in 1831. So uh, we'll be interested to see how people respond to those two episodes. You will more or less stop it around that period, 9-11? That's where we stopped season one. We've talked about telecommunications and no internet back then. Broadcast journalism up to relatively recent times was different. There were um, only a handful of networks and Mm -hmm. there wasn't cable and there was different standards. And some people would say it was more straightforward reporting compared to today where it's more fragmented and people complain about bias. What's your thoughts on that? Our guiding uh, North Star, if you will, is that if there is a broadcast that's inextricable with the event, then those are the broadcasts that we tend to to, to sort of gravitate to. Um, you know, even in this season, I'm reminded that there, you know, w- that we, you know, demonstrate some debate. For instance, at the end of the 9-11 episode, almost every one of the episodes, we, the broadcast journalists, uh, the question I asked everybody was, how well did you do that day? And how well, by comparison to today, would you do anything differently? Mm-hmm. And we got some really self-reflective, I mean, very critical um, of their reporting, especially um, election night 2000, uh, you know, or 9-11. 
um, the debates about, you know, how raw should that coverage be? Do they show the people jumping? Do they not show the people jumping? Uh, there were there were all kinds of debates going on inside um, inside broadcast journalism that day. Um, and um, uh, so, you know, we 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 really try to make sure that we um, are very what's the word um, we try to not be. Yes, yes. And and I think today what happens is that, you know, y- you can look at, you know, some of the uh, networks, some of the cable networks in particular, and both in, 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 in almost every instance, you'll find a portion of the day where I think it is pretty straight down the line broadcast journalism. Mm. I think where you start getting into that um, that gray area of uh, opinion and so forth is is typically in the morning uh, primetime block and the uh, in the evening primetime block. But by yeah. and large, I I tend to see that you know most of them are pretty you know pretty right down the middle of the road uh, the, the rest of the day. Yeah, that's an interesting um, analysis. I, I sometimes think a lot of it is driven by market dynamics, just the Absolutely. bottom line. The producers and uh, and managers are saying, well, we're getting more of an audience if we cover this, cover it this way. And, it, and the sort of the monetary considerations drive a lot of the coverage. No question about it. And in fact, um, Walter Cronkite, who I mentioned earlier, who wrote the foreword to the book originally 20 years ago, if you read that foreword, and I, I'll be happy to share a copy of it with you, he could have written it today, where he talks about um, you know, the uh, entertainmentization, uh, if you will, mm-hmm. of, of, of broadcast journalism. Of, you know, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm reminded of a situation even right here in Los Angeles, Two different stations, one uh, a local station, KTLA, another one is uh, an ABC affiliate. They, they tend to have sort of individual personalities. And what happened was uh, on the same night, there was a jailbreak and there was a threat of a storm. One of the stations, because they knew their research showed them that when it comes to inclement weather, the audience comes to them. So when it came time to promote their 11 o'clock news, they led with a storm on the way, film at a left sort of thing, whereas the other station led with the jailbreak. So about it, that? You know, the, the research is, is you know, very, very um, granular. So they know what audience comes to them. But, you know, they still covered both events. But, you know, one knew which one to lead with in order to make sure their audience showed up at 11 o'clock. That is incredible. Data mining or something to call it and search engine optimization and all those esoteric things uh, which you need rocket scientists to figure out half the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Brian Williams bought into the project big time. Yeah, I was so thrilled. Um, you know, Brian and I first crossed paths back in uh, 2008 when I did the 10th anniversary and, and the final edition to We Interrupt This Broadcast. And it was the final edition for the very reason that you um, suggested earlier, where it's very kind of hard to find those common We Interrupt This Broadcast moments. Everything's been distilled into breaking news or this just in or what have you. Um, but he very graciously offered to write the afterword to the book. So we bookended it. We had Walter writing the foreword and, and, uh, and Brian writing the afterword. Uh, so when uh, it came time to uh, decide how to, um, you know, format the, the podcast, which, you know, the, the audio on that accompanies the book is very short, 
four minute little features, that kind of thing. These are half hour, 40 minutes, close to 50 minutes in some cases. I just have always, you know, uh, enjoyed and appreciated his style and approach and so forth. And I thought he would be a, a great storyteller. That said, we still have uh, the, the man that, that brought life to it initially in the book form, uh, Bill Curtis, uh, it provides sort of the introduction, sets the scene, um, and, you know, to, to every single episode. He's sort of, uh, to we interrupt this broadcast, what Rod Serling was to Twilight Zone or William Shatner was to Star Trek. You know, they did that opening monologue and sort of set the, the scene for it. And then Brian comes in and, and it's great. Both of them have such a breadth of, you know, they've forgotten more about broadcast journalism than I'll ever know. I know you're going to get a big audience. I'm going to listen. Uh, but who do you see well, as your audience? You. you know, it's interesting. Obviously, I think that uh, um, hopefully the broadcast journalism community will will come to uh, to appreciate it. Um, I, I also think that anybody that's interested in history, yeah. you're, you're going. To, I can promise you, you're going to hear these stories differently than you've ever heard them before because. No. We're, we're telling the stories exclusively through the perspective of the broadcast journalists who covered it. Mm. And, and you'll really come to appreciate uh, the humanity at the core of it. Um, you know, it, it, like uh, I think of John Montone, somebody from your neck of the woods, recently retired 1010 Winds reporter, mm. talking about, um, you know, when we do 9-11, we cover that Tom Brokaw, uh, Dan Rather, um, you know, uh, so we have network level, we have uh, the producers and we have crews and we have um, the local reporters in in John and, and uh, a, a woman named Mara Rubin, who was with WOR at the time. So you'll really hear uh, the unfolding of that day from all these different perspectives and all the different decisions that they had to make and all the the worries that they had. Um, uh, and, and, and so, I, you know, Long-winded way of saying that I think that you'll 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 hear these stories differently than you've ever heard them told before. Well, that's great. It sounds like a lot of investment in time and resources, and you had a big team to put this together. It's pretty sophisticated and slick. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I'd, I'd I'd like to think that it's uh, getting back to your your original question about who will listen. I think I think history buffs will listen. I think people that are interested in um, you know in in reliving these moments that are that are the benchmarks of our lives. We all share. We all have a, a recollection as to where we were when. So I think there's that element. I think that um, uh, that there's certainly an education uh, an educational component to it. So I think. Um, you know, young listeners will get a lot out of it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think that it'll, I think it's, it'll appeal to a wide, a wide swath of uh, people. Any particular episodes you enjoyed the most? Well, there's 12 of them. Well, I, you know, I, there's something about each one of them that I could point to that I was really proud of. Um, that was the, that was the important thing. Um, you know, I think that, uh, I, you know, Columbine, for instance, yeah. um, I haven't listened to that, but I'm particularly interested to get that insights that, you know, you reflect on Columbine and um, and it takes a podcast or an event or a broadcast uh, initiative to kind of trigger your memories again, because we tend to, it was a horrible episode in history, so we've buried it. So um, it'll be interesting to see how uh, you've handled that. Yeah. David Bernkoff, who was uh, head of news operations for CNN, said something very insightful. He said, you know, 
in reflecting back on that event, when you, you know, when you think about it from today's perspective, it's like, gosh, I hope not a lot of people got killed. You know, I, you know, it happened again. That's awful. But he said that day you were like, wait, what? What? Some somebody's shooting up kids in a high school. Yeah. I mean, we'd become so desensitized to it. The other thing that comes yeah. out that you'll hear from the reporters and, and in that particular instance, I I focused mostly on the local reporters. I mean, we have some national voices in there. There's no question. But but from the local perspective, um, you know, this event outpaced the coverage protocols of broadcast journalism, meaning that they were doing everything they could. They had helicopters. At one point, they had four helicopters flying over the high school, which the kids today, now all adults, have PTSD from. Whenever they hear a helicopter, they're immediately back in the halls yeah. of Columbine High School. But, you know, so, and, and they're taking calls and they're doing, you know, all this kind of stuff that now in hindsight, they're thinking, you know, we didn't even know if the perpetrators had access to media inside. We shouldn't have been giving that kind of detail. As, as Kathy Walker, who was news director at KOA Radio in Denver, said, Columbine changed everything. It changed everything for media and it changed everything for a law enforcement because law enforcement nowadays, law enforcement heads right in. In those days, mm. they waited. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they waited and it cost lives. Uh, the, the, the teacher, uh, some of the other kids that, that couldn't get treatment. Um, so yeah, Columbine is a, is a very interesting episode because it, 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 it really puts everything in perspective today. And it's, and you know, there were mistakes made. Has it changed the rules of engagement as you've suggested for the media covering these events? Clearly it has. Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely has. Um, you know, again, they're way more sensitive. And the other thing too is, um, it's it's also the way the stories are, are crafted. One of the thing, one of the debates we get into in that particular episode is fact checking. Yeah. To a person, they say, "Look, you know, when you're there on the scene, the competitive element mandates that if you've got somebody that's coming out of that school and they're willing to get in front of that camera and that microphone, you're going to ask them the questions." Now, how much of what they just experienced, are they really going to be able to articulate mm -hmm. in reality? 90%, 50%, 5%. Uh, but you're not going to wait to verify what they're saying. You're going to put it on the air. And that's just, as David Bernkopf says, it's one of the dirty little secrets of journalism in general, broadcast journalism in particular, because you're live in the moment. And... Um, and that happened. And we, we talk about that in 9-11, too. R.A. Fleischer, who was uh, George Bush's uh, press secretary, uh, participated in this podcast series. And oh. he talked about the misinformation that was disseminated. And at the same time, he was so grateful for broadcast television because in, in, in 2001, there was no satellite TV on Air Force One. They had to rely completely on terrestrial television. So they, were, they would fly over a city whose wow. tower happened to be tall enough and powerful enough so that they could watch and then it would go to snow and then they'd watch. Isn't that amazing? So they would they just keep circling around. Yeah. So My as they were making their way that. to Barksdale and all those places. Oh yeah. It was, uh, hmm. it was, uh, it was harrowing. 
Wow, that's fascinating detail. I'm also wondering, broadcast media and, and, and journalism supposed to be independent voice for of the people, as it were. But when it comes to incidents like Columbine 9-11 back then and going forward, mm-hmm. has it changed the rules of engagement between uh, civil authorities and senior editors, law enforcement? Is there any kind of unwritten rules? Hey, guys, we'll hold off. We know there's something going on, even though their gut instinct might be to break something and beat the competition. Right. Um, I, I think it depends on the on the uh, severity of whatever. Uh, um, Ari talked about uh, conversations that they had in the days after 9-11, where they, um, and even on that day, on that day, the um, heads of the news divisions at all of the networks were all on a common line and with uh, a White House uh, official as well, saying, look, don't scare them any more than they already are. Yeah. And uh, so they they, you know, the barriers of competition that day were were gone. Uh, everybody shared pictures, they shared video, they shared uh, intel. Um, and in the days after, uh, Ari Flasher talks about conversations that he had with the heads of news divisions where they talked about, you know, look, let's not give out the president's schedule any sooner than day, you know, than day of or and only as necessary. Uh, don't show parts of the White House. Um, you know, when uh, when Osama bin Laden sends one of his uh, videos, um, those could be messages out to sleeper cells. You know, if you have to show it, show it in bits and pieces. Um, so they they began to kind of have a, um, you know, sort of a, um, at least a temporary protocol uh, of how things um, would be reported um, going forward. So uh, I don't know how many of those protocols are still in place, but at least, um, you know, they all realized there was a, a real responsibility and the safety of the country was most important. Well, there was a different protocol also in place when Kennedy was in office and his predecessors. Things went on at the White House then that were never reported. There was a hands-off uh, rule among among reporters in the pool. That, hey, we're not going to cover anything uh, scandalous or that might damage personal reputation of the Decorum. President. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> Appropriateness. <laughs> I think those gloves came off during the Nixon administration. And seeing what you're up to there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I'm excited about this. And so it can be uh, the practical side of this. You can go on to all the different platforms and listen. Can you give us all the details there? Yeah, we're every place you get podcasts and uh, just put in, we interrupt this broadcast and uh, and it'll take you right to us. And there's 12 episodes there. You can binge them. You can, uh, you know, uh, go one at a time or, you know, based on uh, anniversaries and that kind of stuff. Today's yeah. the, as we're recording this, it's the 20th of July. So today is the anniversary of the Apollo 11 lunar landing. Um, so it's a, a great way to kind of um, experience that event all over again. And then next month, uh, we have um, uh, the death of Princess Diana. And mm. in that case, uh, Kevin Connolly, who is still a BBC reporter who was uh, on scene in Paris that night, um, he talks about how the difference between covering an event like that then in 1997 versus today uh, is just night and day and goes through why and how and and uh, and how difficult it was to get the information. We also have Dickie Arbiter. We, we tell that story 360. Uh, Dickie Arbiter was the uh, Queen's spokesperson 
um, in Buckingham Palace. So not only do we talk about it and, and um, you know, uh, demonstrate what it was like trying to gather the news uh, from Dickie's perspective, he's able to tell us how they were trying to, um, uh, you know, be sort of, um, you know, the traffic cop, uh, you know, of the news and what do we talk about and what shouldn't we talk about and that kind of stuff. And, and the decision as to whether or not um, uh, Diana got a royal funeral or, you know, that she just got a small family funeral. And, and uh, the, the question about is her casket going to be on a gun carriage or in a, um, or in a hearse? And, uh, you know, so all those kinds of details and the amount of camera work and the amount of, you know, labor and how that was the last time that they allowed multiple cameras inside uh, Westminster Abbey. It just it was it was too unruly. They had too many cameras, too many lights, too many reporters. And uh, so they uh, that was a turning point for them in terms of how they would televise these major uh, ceremonies and so forth. Well, I'm excited, Joe Garner. Congratulations on the podcast. And oh, thank we look you. forward to listening. Thank you for being thank on you, my Jay. show. Great to be with you. Thanks. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.